It's quite a story. Good morning, everybody. My brother has a dog named Samson. It's the biggest dog you've ever seen in your whole life. It's like a horse. It's like, what kind is it, Tori? A Great Dane. You ever seen like a full-grown Great Dane? Like kids ride it and stuff. Samson is an appropriate name for that dog. Well, it's good to be here this morning. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor here at Victory Point, and we are going to talk about Samson this morning. And, uh, you know, it was fun just to watch that children's video of Samson because that's the Samson I remember, right? That's the Samson I grew up as a child learning about and um, hearing stories about was that Samson. That's the Samson, you know, I was, I was first exposed to in Sunday school. Remember the flannel graph? Anyone remember like learning with a flannel graph where they would cut out felt figures and put them on like this board and you would learn all the the great stories of the Old Testament, you know, on a flannel graph. I remember my Sunday school teacher at Rehoboth Reformed Church in Lucas, Michigan, telling me about Samson and what a hero Samson was of the Bible, that he was this really strong guy with really long hair. I picture it like with a mullet. Uh, I picture him sort of like Matt Crozier probably looked in the 80s, you know, just this cool long hair, some spandex and things like that. You know, he's a really strong guy with long hair. He liked the ladies and he fought a lot. But then, you know, as I grow up and especially today as an adult, when I read Samson's story, I got to ask the question, like, is he really the kind of guy that we want to offer as a hero? Is he is he really a hero? Is he a hero of the Old Testament? So this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at the, the whole story. I want to look at the real Samson, maybe more accurately, the complete Samson. The scenes that sort of get left out of movies like that, that we show children. And I want to ask, what are the lessons from Samson's life for our life today? Okay, that's what we're going to do this morning. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we open up this living, breathing book Uh, we have expectation um, that it will change our lives. And uh, that is our expectation this morning, that as we engage with your word, that your Holy Spirit is going to join us in this effort and is going to reveal truth and um, your, your desires for us this morning. And our job is to hear what you're saying and to receive those and to put them into action. So that's what we are committed to doing and we're trusting that you will follow through with your part and that you will teach us some things this morning about who you are and who we are through the story of Samson. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if the story of Samson, uh, let me move ahead here to the title slide. Where is it? We sang a lot of songs. My thing working, there we go. So what I want to ask this morning is, is Samson a hero? And we're going to be hanging out in Judges 13 through 16. And uh, Pete, that's not coming up, so can you just advance that for me? Thanks. Um, If the story of Samson were a Shakespearean play, for instance, I I wonder, would it be considered a heroic tale or a tragedy? Like, what would it be? Because I think it could be either or, and it's probably both. It's full of these amazing feats and these disastrous failures, which I can really appreciate and relate to, because that's what my life feels like sometimes, these amazing feats and these disastrous failures. Samson lived in the time of Israel's judges. Um, And let me just tell you a little bit about what that time was like, you know, in Samson's life. 
God had chosen a people, we know this story probably, God had chosen a people, Israel, to be his people. He was going to be their God and through them he was going to bless them and through them bless the world. And so God has delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. He's given them his law to live by, sort of like his covenant uh, vows to live by in in almost like a marriage relationship. And after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God has placed his people in the promised land. Now God expects his people to live like his people. That's always God's expectation. God expects his people to live like his people, to be the people of God, to be holy, to be set apart because he is holy. And uh, I don't know if you can go to the next slide for me, Pete, because this one's not working. Maybe uh, Brendan or somebody could take this and get it working for me while I keep talking. Appreciate that, Brendan. Um, so in my, uh, in my devotional you know, readings this week, I'm in Leviticus, right? Like it, I'm so glad I wasn't a priest in the time of Leviticus because, I mean, you had to be like a, a dermatologist checking out people's skin disease. You had to be a home inspector checking out the mold in their homes. You had to be a butcher cutting up all these animals. Like, what a deal to be a priest in, in the time of Israel. But uh, I came across this verse in Leviticus 18, um, 2 through 4, and I just thought this was awesome. Like, th- this is God's desire for his people. Listen to this. The Lord said this, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. I am the Lord your God, so do not act like the people in Egypt where you used to live or like the people in Canaan where I'm taking you. You must not imitate their way of life. You must obey all my regulations and be careful to obey my decrees for I am the Lord your God. This is God's heart and instructions to his people, you know, between coming out of Egypt before they go into the promised land. Don't be like the people that were in Egypt. And don't be like the people that are going to be in the promised land. You are to be my prized possession. You are to be my set apart people. You're to be different. You're to to act differently. You're to be differently. To to point people to me. Don't live like the people around you. That's God's instructions. Don't live like the people around you. So they go into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And it was good. But, But after Joshua dies, it sort of begins to unravel. A little bit and even quite a bit. If you turn to the last verse in the book of Judges, Judges 21, 25. Is that one up there, Judges 21, 25? Maybe I missed that one. There you go. It says, this is the very last verse in the book of Judges, okay? If you were to flip all the way to the end of Judges, because that's where Samson's story is found in the book of Judges. If you go all the way to the last verse, this is what it says. It says, in those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Thanks a lot, Brennan. That's the story of the book of Judges. It's 300 years worth of stories of what happens when a nation depends on its own sense of morality rather than God's. It's it's almost, in some ways, the book of Judges, if you read the whole thing, it's almost a depressing and even graphic narrative. It's filled with murder and rape and idolatry and betrayal and deceit and fortification and adultery and divorce. And that's just among the leaders. That's just among the leaders in the book of Judges. It's it's a story of God's people who frequently walk away from God. So what, what does God do in those situations? He does what a good father does. He disciplines his people. 
He disciplines his people and he raises up nations around them to oppress them and to make them slaves. And then what would happen is during those seasons of of oppression and suffering, God's people would cry out to God and God would raise up a judge. He would raise up a judge who might be a military or a civil leader, a deliverer for his people to save them. And then there would be this time of peace and this time of God's favor as as they obeyed the Lord. But then the judge would die and Israel would go back to sinning. And it was like this cycle that just kept repeating over and over and over. That's the stories of the book of Judges. The story of Samson takes place in one of these cycles. The Philistines have been ruling over and oppressing the Israel, the nation of Israel for like 40 years. That's the context for the Samson story. That's the, the, the when of the Samson story. But I also think it's helpful to understand the where. Or the geography of the story. Samson, Samson lived in an area of Israel known as, known as the Shephelah. I'm going to put a little map up there. I know it's kind of hard to see. But you see kind of like uh, this is Israel. And you have the Mediterranean Sea on the left. And over on the right you can see the Sea of Galilee up top with the Jordan River going down to the Dead Sea. And along the coast of the Mediterranean you have the coastal plain. And then inland to the east you have the Judean mountains. But in between in this valley is the Shephelah. Okay. And that's a strategic area. It's an important area to understand. Um, Shephelah means lowlands or foothills it's sort of this 12 to 15 mile wide region in the Judean uh, you know area down there just between the coastal plains and the mountains and that's where Samson's home was Samson's home was in Zorah in the foothills overlooking the Sorek valley which you can kind of see um, on the left up there that's the region where Samson grew up and where this story takes place Here's kind of a, a modern picture of that that uh, I took when I was in Israel um, last month. And uh, this is kind of looking out over into those valleys, into the Soric Valley. And, and kind of the Mediterranean is farther, you know, in the background on the horizon. Um, these are in those foothills, okay? Uh, this is where Samson's story took place. And in Joshua 19, we learn that this region was given to the small tribe of Dan, as their inheritance when the promised land was sort of divided up. The Shephelah region is a strategic one, okay? It's strategic. Here's why it's strategic. The valleys in the Shephelah formed a natural trade route, okay, between the empires of Rome and Egypt uh, to the west with the empires of Persia, Babylon, and Assyria to the west, or to the east. And whoever, con- so whoever, think about this, whoever controlled these foothills, they would dominate the relationship between these powers. It would be sort of like the equivalent in, in the significance of maybe the Panama Canal of their day, okay? It, it was like it, whoever can control this little strategic spot of geography has great influence, you know, in the world. And uh, so it was an important region, now you have the Israelites, they lived up in the foothills, kind of where, you know, where I'm standing taking this picture. The Israelites lived up here in the foothills. The Philistines, they lived down on the coastal plains. Now, originally God's intention and desire, I think, was for the Israelites when they came into the promised land to possess it all, you know, to, to take possession even of the coastal plains, but they didn't. So the Shephelah was this area of constant conflict. There's always this conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines. It's where two people, 
two cultures, two worldviews collided. And you can imagine there was constant tension there. And whenever that happens, whenever two worldviews come into contact with each other, you always have three options, I think, you know, as to how you respond to that. And you might want to write these down. I didn't put them on a slide. But whenever two worldviews or cultures come into the same area and exist closely to each other, you have three options. You can isolate yourself, right? You can withdraw and avoid any contact with someone who's different. You can assimilate you can just adopt whatever the other culture, you know, has going and just make it your own. Or you can faithfully engage. You can engage that other culture and seek to influence it. God's desire for his people, I think then and today, is never to isolate, to withdraw from culture. Nor is it God's desire for us to just assimilate and adopt culture. It's always to engage culture. To, to represent him in culture. That's always God's desire. To live such set-apart lives, lives of grace and lives of truth so that we show the world by our behavior and by our lifestyles who God is. That we show the world who God is. You know, to, to live in the world but not of the world pointing to the God of the world. That's always God's desire. So that's the context of, of, of the Samson story. So Judges 13, we're going to pick up Samson's story there. And what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to read a couple verses, but pretty much I'm going to just tell the story of Samson because it embodies Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to follow along and you should be able to to keep up with me. But here's how, you know, Samson's story begins. So Judges 13, again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines. He's disciplining his people who oppressed them for 40 years. Now in those days, a man named Manoah from the tribe of Dan lived in the town of Zorah. His wife was unable to become pregnant. They had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and said, even though you've been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and you will give birth to a son. So be careful. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food. You will become pregnant and you will give birth to a son. And his hair must never be cut, for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. Now, early in the history, just a a little footnote here, early in the history of Israel, of God's people. God established the Nazarites as these set-apart people, people totally devoted to the service of God. You can read more about that in Numbers 6. If you want to read more about the Nazarite vow, Numbers 6. But a Nazarite took a vow, took a vow of total separation from the community. It could either be for a short time, for a short season, or in Samson's case, it could be for your whole life. Okay, there's different examples of Nazarites in the scriptures. I mean, you have Samuel as an example of a Nazarite in the Old Testament. There was a period of time when Paul took a Nazarite vow for a season. You know, some think that maybe John the Baptist uh, lived out of a Nazarite vow. So uh, a Nazarite could be a male or female, um, and it could be for a season or, or for a life. Now, a Nazarite vow was something that you made, or in Samson's case, your parents made for you before you were born, and it included these kinds of things. 
abstaining from wine, abstaining from, you know, wine or like uh, any fermented drink or product that comes from the grapevine, which would have been unique in that day and time. In a, in a day and time when water, fresh water was scarce, I mean, most people drank wine. So that would have been a unique thing to abstain from wine. So you had to abstain from wine. You had to not cut your hair. And you had to avoid dead bodies. Okay, those were three big deals for a Nazarite. So keep those in mind as we read Samson's story. All this to say, like if you took a Nazarite vow and you didn't cut your hair and and you lived this sort of lifestyle, you would stand out, right? You would stand out. You would be set apart from everyday culture. You you would stand out in both appearance and lifestyle. And and that was God's intention, that a person living a Nazarite vow would be a living reminder to the Israelites of their call as a nation, not just as an individual, but as a nation to be set apart, to be set apart from the pagan culture around them. And Nazarite was to be a living picture to everyone that he or she encountered, a reminder that God expects people, his people, to live differently, to live not don't be like the Egyptians. Don't be like those in the land of Canaan. You're to be different. You're to live my way. You're to live the, in, a, in a way that reflects my character. Samson was to be that kind of picture to the Israelites and to the Philistines. He was to be that sort of set apart picture. So how did he do? Well, we're going to walk through Samson's story. And like I said, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to... Uh, kind of read it through. So if we get to the end of Judges 13, you know, this whole, that's a whole conversation between the angel and Samson's mom and then Samson's dad. But if you get to the end of Judges 13, it says this, when her son was born, she named him Samson. So all this came to be. She named him Samson and the Lord blessed him as he grew up. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him, began to stir him while he lived in Mahanadan, which is located between the towns of Zorah and Eshtael. Okay, so Samson's born. Let me tell you kind of what happens in Judges 14, 15, and 16. I'm just going to kind of talk through it, okay? So kind of the first thing we hear about Samson is Samson went down to Timnah, and there he saw a young Philistine woman. And when he returned to his mom and dad, Samson said to his mom and dad, I've seen a young Philistine woman Now go get her to be my wife. This mom and dad, you know, they reply like, Samson, like, what about all the nice Israelite girls? Okay, like, shouldn't we, like, you should marry in the family. You know, that's what God's desire is. You know, that that we, you know, same religion as you. Like, how about, like, we get you a nice Israelite girl? You know, why go among the uncircumcised Philistines? Whenever the Bible uses that word, uncircumcised, what they're referring to is they're non-Torah observant people. They don't follow the Torah. They don't follow the way of our God. They, they don't follow the scriptures, okay? So how about a nice Israelite girl? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. Get her for me. You know, he's pouting. I almost picture him like going like this. Get her for me. She's the right one for me. So... Samson goes down to Timnah together with his father and his mother, and they approach these vineyards of Timnah. And then this, maybe this is a piece you remember from the story or even the video. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him um, because there, there was a young lion, right? It says, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands, just like he might tear apart a young goat. 
which I don't get that reference. Like, is that something common that they did in those days? Like, oh, it's like tearing apart a young goat, you know. But interesting too, you know, notice that it says young lion, right? In some translations, some scholars suggest that maybe even it was a lion cub. Kind of gives a different spin on the whole Samson story. But either way, it was ferociously approaching him and he dealt with it. Then he kept on. Now it says sometime later, so now they're going back. He's going back to marry this young Philistine girl. He, he kind of took a little detour apart from his mom and dad. He went over to check on the lion's carcass. And you remember what he discovered? That a swarm of bees had sort of you know, taken over the carcass and there was honey in the carcass. So what he did was he scooped out of the dead carcass, out of the dead body, he, he scooped some honey and he ate some and he gave some to his parents to eat some. He never told them where he got the honey. So then it says that then they went down, you know, to Timnah and there was a big feast because there's going to be a wedding. So there's a big feast. It's customary. It's, it's probably likely that there was wine involved in this big feast. And it's even possible that Samson might have had some wine. Um, when the people, you know, saw Samson, they chose, it says, 30 men to be his companions, to be his friends, to be his buddies. So Samson, you know, he's in a good mood. I don't know if he's drinking wine, but it's possible. So he tells him a riddle. Like some riddle about, you know, some, some honey, something sweet, you know, out of something dead. And um, so he says, man, if, if you guys can solve this riddle in seven days, I will give you like each a, a, like a set of clothes. Like a really nice set of clothes, of garments, okay? So they're, they're trying to figure it out. On the fourth day, they finally go to, you know, Samson's wife and says, we can't figure this out. He's embarrassing us. Like, you got to help us figure this out. So it says that Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, you hate me. You really don't love me. You're giving my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. He said, I haven't even told my mom and dad. I haven't even told my parents the answer to this riddle. You know, like, why should I tell you? But she cried for the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her, because she continued to press him, he gave in and he told her the answer to the riddle. She goes and tells the Philistines. They come on the seventh day and they answer the riddle to his surprise. And he makes this weird comment about his wife, like plowing with his heifer. And um, then like it says, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon and he struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to the 30 who had explained the riddle. So the way he got, the way he followed through on his deal is he went and killed 30 guys, took their stuff and gave it to the 30 guys who he owed stuff to. It says, burning with anger, he returned to his father's home. And so Samson's wife, this young Philistine girl, was given to one of his companions who attended the feast. Uh-oh. So now if you go to Judges 15, it says later on at that time, it's time of the wheat harvest, you know, Samson went down, back down there to see his wife. He, he says, like, I'm going to my wife's room. I don't know what he had in mind, but he's going to go see his wife. Her father, though, would not let him go in. She goes, uh, we thought you hated her, so I gave her to your companion. How about her sister, right? Like, how, how about her sister? You know, she's attractive. Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out, and this is, remember this story? He went out and he caught 300 foxes. I don't know how he did it. I didn't even know there's, how there'd be that many foxes in the area. He caught 300 foxes, and he tied them up in pairs by their tails, and he put a torch on, on the tails, and he lit it, and he sent them loose into all the fields of the Philistines. And these foxes 
are running because they're tied together and there's fire behind them and they burn down all the fields of the Philistines. And when the Philistines like saw what had happened, they said, who did this? They were told that Samson did this because his wife had been given to somebody else. So the Philistines went up, took her and her father and burned them. I mean, the Bible is not like a G-rated story when you start reading it. Some of these things were left out of the video, you know. (laughs) Samson said, you know, since you've acted like this, what you've done to my wife, I'm not going to stop till I get my revenge on you. So he attacked them viciously. He slaughtered many of them. Then he went down to a cave. Now, this riled up the Philistines. So they go to the rest of Israel, and they're going to have war with Israel. And so the people of Israel are like, why are you coming at us? How about we go get Samson, and we'll deliver him to you? And, and they said, okay, deal. So they, the, the Israelites take 3,000 men. You know, they're not treating him lightly. They take 3,000 men. They go to the cave where Samson is. They say, hey, we got to deliver you over to the Philistines. Let us tie you up. He said, all right, as long as you don't kill me, you can tie me up. So they tied him up. They brought him to the Philistines. As they approached the Philistines, and the Philistines came out shouting in victory, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson. The ropes of his arm became just like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. And then this is the part, remember, where he finds a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and he struck down a thousand Philistines. Then there's this little scene at the end of 15 where after doing that, Samson's really thirsty. He starts whining and crying to God, like, hey, you've given your servant this great victory. Now I'm going to die of thirst, you know? So God opened up a place in a rock and water came out and Samson drank and his strength returned. It says that Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Then you get to Judges 16. There's this story of Samson and Deliah, Delilah. It says, one day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson's here. So they, the Philistines surround this room. But Samson left earlier in the night. And what he did is he went to the gate of Gaza. And it said that he, he, he picked the whole thing up. He, he took it like right out of its, its moorings. You know, he, he just took the whole gate and then carried it to Hebron, which could have been upwards to 40 miles. He, he, he escaped by picking up the gate, taking it, you know, out of its posts and just tore it loose, bar and all, and carried it 40 miles away. Sometime later, he fell in love. He fell in love with a woman in the Valley of Sorek. Remember the, the picture, the Valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Now, the rulers of the Philistines, they said to her, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him. Now, and that, you know, when I read that, like, just a side note, I just got to wonder, like, I wonder what, I wonder, why do they need to know the secret of Samson's strength? I used to picture Samson as this big, strong man. Like, think of Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. You know, have you seen him in movies? He's in every movie, like, that comes out. Like, like that's how I picture Samson. But I'm beginning to wonder if maybe that's not what Samson looked like. Because if you looked like that, I wouldn't wonder about the source of your strength. Like if, if Dwayne the Rock Johnson was standing right here and I was standing right here and we said that, you know, Dwayne Johnson can bench press like 300 pounds. Would you be surprised by that? No, look at him. Of course he can. But if I said I can bench press twice as much as Dwayne Johnson, you'd like, what's your secret? It makes me wonder. 
I wonder if Samson was just an average looking dude. Maybe he wasn't like this big, strong looking dude. And so they're trying to figure out where's his strength come from. So they're trying to get Delilah to help them out. And they offer her a whole bunch of money, a whole bunch of silver. So she goes to Samson like, Samson, I know you like me. Like, tell me the secret to your strength. And he says, okay. If anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become weak just like any other man. So he falls asleep. They tie him up with seven fresh bowstrings. She yells, the Philistines are here. The Philistines are here. He gets up, breaks all the bowstrings. Didn't work. You lied to me, Samson. You made a fool of me. You know, okay, okay. Well, here's what will happen. If you tie me up with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become weak like any other man. Samson falls asleep. They tie him up with new ropes. Philistines are coming. The Philistines are coming. He wakes up, breaks all the ropes, takes care of business. Now Delilah's really upset. You've been making a fool of me. You've been lying to me. Tell me, how can you be tied up? You would wonder, like, why does she want to know all this? Like, he doesn't learn very quickly. Well, here's, what, here's the real secret. If you take the seven braids of my hair and, and you put them into the fabric on a loom and you tighten it with a pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head and wove them into fabric. What a heavy sleeper, right? How could you not wake up when your hair's being sewn into something? Then she said, the Philistines are upon you. And he, bra- he wakes up, pulled up the pin in the loom and the fabric. And then she how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me. Haven't told me the secret of your strength. Then verse 16 of Judges 16. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I've been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. So she convinces the Philistines, one more try. Come on, I think I got it now. One more try. He falls asleep. They shave his head. He wakes up when she cries out, thinking it's just the same as before, and then realizes his strength is gone. They capture him. They gouge out his eyes, and they put him in prison, and they make him grind grain. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved, which I find like, why didn't you keep shaving his head? Like the Philistines are not very smart either. If that's what worked, why didn't you keep cutting his hair? But they, his hair grew back, okay? Now the end of 16. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God. And to celebrate, they say, and God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Let's make fun of him. Now Dagon is the God of the harvest for the Philistines, okay? Uh, tradition says he had the head of a man and the body of a fish. I'm glad our God is just like, not like that. And um, so they're, they're worshiping Dagon and they're going to like, let's bring Samson out. You know, he's our prized possession and we're going to make fun of him. So while they were in high spirits, they said, bring him out. And then they stood him among the pillars. It's probably like 3,000 people, it says, maybe even more, you know, in the temple, on the roof of the temple, watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, verse 28. Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And you know the story. You know, Samson positioned his hands on two pillars and he pushed with all his might and he said, let me die with the Philistines. And the down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more 
when he died than when he lived. That's the story of Samson. Hero? The story of Samson isn't as simple as I thought it was when I was a kid. It's not as simple as I thought. I mean, is Samson a hero? I mean, he does get a mention in Hebrews 11, which is sometimes called the heroes of the faith. He gets a a quick mention in there. I mean, obviously, Samson did have faith. He did have faith in God. And he definitely had the Holy Spirit in him. Even though sometimes it feels like he used the power of the Holy Spirit for his own selfishness than for God's glory. He seems to me a man who was more emotionally driven than he was spirit-led. He was driven sometimes, oftentimes, more by emotion than by the spirit. I mean, lust seemed to control him. Revenge consumed him. Even at the end, you, you see that, don't you? revenge consumed him. He was often emotionally reactive rather than rationally responsive. He seemed to be more concerned with what he wanted than with what God wanted. He was an incredibly strong man with a dangerously weak will. He's the weakest strong man that I know. Remember what I said when when two cultures come into proximity with each other? Two peoples come into proximity with us. You can either isolate, assimilate, or engage. What what did Samson do? Well, rather than engage the culture, it seems like Samson assimilated to it. He adopted the culture around him. Rather than influence it, he adopted the lifestyle of the Philistines. And he wanted what the Philistines had to offer. He compromised God's values. He disobeyed the Torah. Samson participated in a wicked culture rather than engage it. He obviously didn't take his Nazarite calling seriously. He didn't take that identity and that vow seriously. We don't know for sure, but it's quite, I think you can make a strong case that at the wedding celebration, he probably partook of some wine. We know that he definitely touched dead bodies, whether it's the little lion cub or the the guys that he killed to get the clothes off or just all the people he killed. He, He did touch dead bodies. He did allow his hair to be cut. I mean, was Samson a faithful hero? In so many ways, I think Samson was a failure. Yet God used him. That's what I want to look at. Just some lessons from Samson. And And the first one, I just love. And I'm grateful for. Because this applies to me. God uses fallen people to accomplish his purposes. Isn't that good news for everyone in this room? God uses fallen people to accomplish his purposes. I think that's one big takeaway from the story of Samson and one that I draw comfort in because even though it's easy for me this morning to point out all of Samson's flaws, I can really identify with them as well. I can identify with with those moments of allowing emotions and desires to rule rather than the spirit, to let the flesh lead over the spirit, to to want what I want versus what God wants. So I'm so grateful that in Samson we have this picture that God uses fallen people for his purposes. But I think that the glaring lesson for me and, and maybe for us in the story of Samson is this. In Samson, God was looking for someone who would be all in, who would be all in for him 
in his mission. The Nazarite vow like just indicates that. Like you're going to be different. You're not going to be like everybody else. You're going to be set apart. You're going to be all in. God is looking for people who are willing to be all in. And, and I think we see in Samson's story just the, the honest, vulnerable truth that many times, oftentimes he, he wasn't. He wasn't all in. Maybe he had one eye on God, but he also had one eye on the appealing culture, and for him, especially the appealing women of the culture around him. And consequently, because of that, because Samson didn't live a life that was all in, his mission, his walk with God, his witness, even his body was weakened. It was weakened, became weak. The only moment that Samson seemed all in in some ways was sort of at the end when he's standing between the pillars. Even though there's still that emotion, you know, the, the, he's still driven by revenge even in that moment. They took out my eyes. Let me kill him. You know, like, but, but at, some, at some level, it seems like he, he's almost acknowledging like, like, God, I've screwed up a thousand times. I don't need a thousand more chances. I, I just, just need one. You know, your power, God, not mine. Your power. And it's almost interesting, like I find anyway, and maybe this is a metaphor, but, you know, Samson lived his life through his eyes, wanting what his eyes laid, you know, what he saw, wanting what he saw. It's only after his eyes were burned out and then gouged out that it's almost like I, I wonder if he was able to hear God better and maybe get in touch. See, I, I, think the, I think the people of the world follow their eyes. I think the people of the Lord follow their ears. And Samson maybe needed to have his eyes taken away before he started to really get it, before he started to really understand what God wanted to do and accomplish through him. God is looking for people who will be all in. All in. Who will live all in. And I think it begs the question for us this morning, are you? It doesn't matter what age you are. Are you all in for the Lord? Are you all in to this life of discipleship? Are you all in to this bringing of the kingdom? Are you all in? Am I all in? It reminds me of what Paul says, right? In Romans 12, familiar, familiar passage. It says, so dear brothers and sisters, I, I plead with you. I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he's done for you. Let them be a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Then this, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn and know God's will for you, which is good and is pleasing and perfect. God desires for his people to live transformed lives in the culture. To live transformed and transforming lives. And how do you do that? I know like it it starts with being in the word. It starts with being in the word. The, the word of God sort of breaks up the rocks and burns the thorns in, in the soil of our hearts and, and prepares good soil for the things of God. I know you can't be all in if you depend on just one hour a week on Sunday mornings. 
All in means like all in. It means hiding the word of God in your heart. In, in obeying the spirit of the Lord in your ears. It means living set apart lives. Living lives worth imitating. Pointing people of the world to the God of the universe. That's what God's desire is for your life and for my life. That it would be like a, a living, breathing billboard that points people of the world to the God of the universe and shows people what he's like. Are you all in? Do you live a life set apart, different from those around you? You know, it's like when those around you at, at work or around the water cooler or at school, you know, are gossiping, you aren't because you're all into God's way. It's when those around you who are getting drunk, you're not because you're living a self-controlled, spirit-filled life. When those around you who are, you know, like having sexual relationships before marriage, but you aren't because you want to live a life that's set apart and holy and pleasing to God and are trying your best to do things God's way. It's when those around you are, are judging other people and, and, and they're, they're making judgments on, on why people are the way they are, and you're not doing that. You're actually demonstrating compassion to those people. You're trying to enter into their lives and you're trying to engage their lives and you're trying to influence their lives. It's when, when those around you are just thinking of themselves and storing up treasures for themselves. You're the one who's giving away treasures for the benefit and for the sake of other people. It's when those around you are complaining, you're trying to be part of the solution. It's when everyone around you is talking, but you're trying to, to do something. I mean, I, I don't know what it looks like, but, but I know that the, the people who are willing to live all in lives, set apart lives, um, engaging the world and the people around them are the people that, that God uses to show the world what he's like and what he's capable of and what his love is like. I just want you to think about that this morning. I want to invite the band up. We're going to sing one more song. But... Uh, Here's the question that we ask almost every week. And if we don't ask it, just ask it of yourselves because we meant to ask it. What's God saying to you? I mean, we just opened up the word of God. We looked at the story, an imperfect, flawed example of a person that God desired to live in all in life who didn't, but God used anyway. We opened up the word of God. We're listening to the spirit of God. What is it that God's saying to you this morning? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning? Where's he getting your attention? Where's he causing, you know, uncomfort? Where, where, where's tension maybe bubbling up? Maybe that's an indicator of an area of life that God wants you to pay attention to. As you think about the world and the, the people around you, do you, are you withdrawing and isolating yourself, escaping, getting away from are you just adopting and assimilating or are you trying to live a life that engages the world with the love of God in, in, through your life, through your imperfect, flawed life, trying to give people a real picture, not a perfect picture, but a real picture of what God, what God is like, how much he loves you and how much he, he loves the person and the people around you. Are you all in? And I would offer this maybe as a metaphor too. What pillars need to come down in your life this morning? 
What pillars do you need God's help to maybe push against this morning that need to come down? Pride, addiction, anger, selfishness, lust, adultery, revenge, areas where you feel like you're compromising, becoming casual with with your identity as a son or daughter of God and the mission that he's invited you into. What pillars need to come down in your life? Just think about that a second and I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing. Father God, thank you for the story of Samson. It's still a good story. And it's in the Bible for a reason. He's a picture to us. Maybe of what you were hoping he would be, but also a picture in some ways of what we don't want to be. But yet we, we grab hold of comfort in the fact that, man, you even use flawed people to accomplish your mission. That's good news for people like us. But Lord, the truth is, we don't want to be like Samson. Honestly, we don't want to be like anybody in this holy book except Jesus. I mean, this book, aside from Jesus, is filled with stories of flawed people that you use to accomplish your purposes. But the one character the one hero that we do want to be like is Jesus. So Lord, I, I pray this morning that, that you would form his character more fully in us. That, that you would grow in us the ability to do the kinds of things that he did. Because he's the one we want to reflect. He's the one we want people to see on the billboards of our lives. But as we walk out of here this morning, we walk out of here not just as sons and daughters of God, but as your people, just like when you called them to begin with, with the same mission to be set apart, to be holy like you are holy, to be all in, to be different, so that when people hear our words and the words we choose not to say, and they see our actions and the actions we choose not to do and um, they they see our lives they want to know about the God whose lives we revolve around may we be living billboards to the people in the valley of who God is and how much he loves them and what it could look like to follow him Lord may that be so in Jesus name Amen. Let's stand and uh, let's sing one more song before.